Has anyone seen this movie 300? I may have a poster to refresh your memory. This movie came out in the early 2000s, and I mean, if you haven't watched it, I'm not recommending it. It's a very violent movie. Uh, but it has a very interesting plot, which comes all the way from 2,500 years ago, the Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans defended the mighty Persian army. Uh, under, their, under the leadership of their king, Leonidas. And uh, that battle only lasted for three days or so, and they got defeated at the end. But, um, but that became a legend that is actually inspiring us, uh, our imagination even today. Now, if you watch the movie, I don't know how many of you remember, you remember the hero, uh, Leonidas, but I don't know if you remember the name of the villain in that story. Anybody? Xerxes, exactly. The mighty Persian emperor, Xerxes, came out at that battle with 80,000 or so army uh, against this 300. Xerxes is not that very popular villain in that story. But if I tell you his wife's name, his wife is way more popular than him. Her name is Esther. Now you know, right? Most of the Christians, if you ever flip through the Bible, you know. Esther, Queen Esther was married to Xerxes, and he is the one, he's also called Ahasuerus, that was his, another name in the Bible. Now, we are going to read from the book of Esther. Now, the reason being, and as you know, we are on a journey, uh, a new series called Return and Rebuild, where under the leadership of Josiah the priest and Jeshua uh, uh, the priest and Zerubbabel, the Israelites coming and returning, and they are rebuilding their temple. And um, uh, we are reading from the book of Ezra. Now, if you follow the storyline, we are somewhere in the middle of Ezra. Ezra chapter 6, we see that the temple is already rebuilt. They already rebuilt the temple by chapter 6. Now, when you go from chapter 6 to 7, there is a 60 years gap there. You know, we just flip through, the, flip through the one chapter to another. Actually, 60 years pass between this. If I can show you the timeline, yes. So the temple is constructed and completed by 516 B.C. And then that's where Ezra 6 ends. And Ezra 7 starts with Ezra's arrival. Now, interestingly, chapter 1 to 6, Ezra is not physically present anywhere. He is actually coming in the second batch by around A.D. 458, sorry, 458 B.C., right? So there is this roughly 60-year gap the story of Esther happens elsewhere, a city of Zusa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. Now, that's why I wanted to go through this chronological order. So Esther is technically sandwiched between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7 um, chronologically. So would you stand with me for the reading of the word today? I'm going to read from 
Esther chapter 4, only one verse, 414. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. Let's say a prayer. Father God, we live in very interesting time period. The world clock is ticking every day. And the events happening pretty much anywhere in the world, particularly in the Middle East, seem to converge into the epicenter of prophecies that has been unfolding from this book for millennia. Now we shudder at the thought that you have placed us here. In so many ways, the cultural capital of the world, Los Angeles, where there is Hollywood and where there is JPL and, and the significant cultural institution for such a time as this. Here we commit ourselves to listen to you, what the Spirit wants to talk to us, whatever your unction is, help us to abide by it, help us to be willing and obedient instruments in your hand, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Winston Churchill said this, at least this is a quote attributed to Winston Churchill. This is what he said. To every man there comes in his lifetime that special moment when he is figuratively tapped on the shoulder and offered a chance to do a very special thing, unique to him and fitted to his talents. What a tragedy if that moment finds him unprepared or unqualified for that which would be his finest hour. From this quote comes the popular idiom, finest hour. It is an expression we often use to describe a specific point in our life and a, a very brief period in our life where the most pivotal moment and where the most defining action in our life takes place, the finest hour, the finest hour. We all find ourselves in that period at some point in our life. Winston Churchill is asking, are you prepared when that finest hour comes? Now, the story of Esther, I don't know how many of you need a recap of the story of Esther. It is all about the finest hour of a woman named Esther. 
There are three beats to the story of Esther, and I mean, this is not a story which is being popularly, which is not often read in, this, in, the, uh, in, a, in a church setting. So the first beat of the story is that there is a guy named Haman who plots the extermination of the Jews. I can, you can put that three beats there. Haman plots the extermination of Jews. That's the, uh, that's the first beat of the story. Second, Esther risks her life to confront Haman. Then there's this climax. Haman is hung on the gallows he made for the Jews. So in the first beat, you see a high-ranking official in Xerxes court and he is determined to exterminate Jews. It is based on a personal vendetta he has against a man named Mordecai who refused to worship him or refused to bow down when he comes, which everybody else does. Mordecai says, no, I'm not going to worship you. So, Mordecai, uh, so Haman has this personal vendetta against him, and as a result, he takes that out on all his people, and he wants to kill all the Jews. Now, this is no big news, and especially as we live, in, live here, interestingly enough, Hamas, which is very sound, eerily similar to Haman, has already declared this, and this is nothing new to the Jews. The, the, the very moment of their existence, Everybody is there to exterminate them, not just to defeat them, to kill all of them, to obliterate them, right? I'm not talking about politics, but it is, it is strange. You think from the common sense. I know a lot of people don't like Indian people for whatever reason, I don't know, but the, I mean, it's, it's quite okay that some of you don't like Indian people. But I've never seen anybody who has an agenda that we are going to exterminate all the Indian people. Oh, I don't think so. I don't think we are that bad, right? So the point is that this is only against one nation. And right from the moment of their existence, they are going to obliterate them. And we are using diplomatic solutions and warfare that UN is involved, US is sending troops, this is a theological issue. This is a spiritual issue. Go ahead. Do all of this. It is only going to come back. It's going to repeat. It is going to repeat unless you look at it through the lens of the scripture. Again, that's not the point, but going back to, so this is something history repeats after 2,500 years ago. This story happened 2,500 years before a guy named Haman wanted to exterminate Jews. Now the second part of the story, Esther who was actually a Jewess, a Jewish woman, happened to be the queen of Xerxes. Now she is kind of hiding in the harem, trying to conceal her identity as a Jewish person. And then Mordecai comes to her, Esther, this is your finest hour. This is why you are in the court of the, this Gentile king. This is the time for you to act. Now, if you don't act, God will protect his children. God will protect his people. But God is tapping on your shoulder, like Winston Churchill said. 
He is tapping on your shoulder, ushering you to your finest hour to do something magnificent with your life. Who knows? God has put you here in the palace for such a time as this. Now, there is a strange system in the court of Xerxes that nobody can walk into his office without an appointment. And the penalty is that the person will die. <laughs> it's not like you walk into my office and say, hey, Pastor Matthew, how are you? I was just walking by this and just say hello. No. But it's just the person without summoning, it doesn't matter whether his wife or children, it doesn't matter. Without being summoned to the court, if you show up at Cersei's door, you are going to die. The penalty is death. So Esther said, oh my goodness, I have an appointment a month from now. I will go and deal with this because my appointment, I had to wait for a month. That's when Mordecai says this. You wait for a month, your people will die. But here is your chance. Now Esther, at that moment, to decide to risk everything she had, her reputation, her position, more importantly, her life, to take that one moment, that one night with the king, she shows up uninvited, without being summoned at Cersei's court. Now the interesting thing is that Cersei takes his scepter and he points at her. He raises it toward her. It's like thumbs up or thumbs down. It is the moment that defines the fate of Esther and the Jewish people. If it is thumbs up, then she can continue. Thumbs down, that's the end of Esther's story. Chapter 4 would be the last chapter of Esther. But thankfully, Xerxes is willing to listen. And then the story unfolds. I have no time to tell you the stories, but eventually what happens is Esther musters the courage to confront the enemy of her people. And uh, there is a twist in the story, which is the third one, which is actually the third one we see. Haman is being hung in the very gallows he prepared for Jews. So the, Haman has decided to kill all the Jews, and he has even prepared the, uh, the killing field, the gallows for this. Now this is the, it's not just that the Jews were escaped, it's almost like a Hollywood twist. It's like a, um, um, it's a poetic justice in a way. Because the very gallows Haman prepared ended up being the place where he and his children were hung. That happens when there, there is a subplot to the story unfold that unbeknownst to all of this, there was a plot against Xerxes, which Mordecai happened to hear. His bodyguards were trying to kill him, and Mordecai listened, hear, heard this plot, and he informed, and Xerxes' life was spared because of that. Interestingly, nobody noticed. Mordecai was never rewarded for this. And the very night these things, is, these things are happening, the king has a divine insomnia. He, the king cannot sleep. 
And when he cannot sleep, he is asking to bring the books of Chronicles out of all the things. He wants it to be read exactly at the chapter of Mordecai saving the king's life. And he was surprised to hear that nobody rewarded Mordecai for it. Then Haman walks in, of all the people, and then king asks Haman, hey, I want to honor somebody who really did me a big favor. What can I do for them? Haman thinks that, oh, it must be about me. He is going to honor me. So Haman says, okay, this is what you're going to do. You are going to bring actually a royal robe that you have worn. You are going to bring your own royal horse, and you are going to bring your throne on his head and you know, do a procession telling everybody this is what the, this is a man honored by the king and you do all of that to him. That's what you should do. And then the king turns around and say, do all of that to Mordecai, which is the arch enemy of Haman. This kind of things happen only in Hollywood movies. It doesn't really happen in real life, right? In a, in a way. So that's, that's really the, that's really the, the story of where, where you have this Hollywood ending that happens at the end, right? Now, there is an interesting tidbit about the book of Esther. Some of you know, may know this. Esther is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not explicitly mentioned. The name of God is not mentioned in the book of Esther. So there have been very debates among theologians and church fathers, whether this book should be included in the Bible or not. There was big battles fought among the church fathers when they finalized the canon, whether the book of Esther is even worthy of being included as the Holy Scripture because the name of God is not specifically mentioned in the book of Esther. But interestingly, a book like this is a, is a great example of how we take the presence of God for granted, in a way. It is almost like the book of Esther. You know, you don't really notice the sun during the, during the day because you are soaked in sunlight. Sun is everywhere during the day. That's why we don't really notice the sun, right? In the same way, the fingerprints of God is everywhere in the book of Esther that you don't really notice God. Because only God can write this kind of stories. It, it is this kind of orchestrations of divine providences in, in, in a way. Well, there is this little girl who is not even a real uh, 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 royalty, happens to get picked as the queen, and her uncle Mordecai happens to hear about this plot that is uh, uh, unfolding against the king. And then this mighty Circus happens to forget rewarding, you know, they, he forgot to reward this man who saved his life. And then the very night all of this is happening, the king happens to have insomnia. And then the king happens to bring this particular book of chronology of, of what happened. And the king happens to read that. And then who walks in? Haman happens to walk in. Now these kind of things have, can be orchestrated only by God. If you don't see God in the book of Esther, you won't see God anywhere in the Bible. Because that's what happens. Quite often we commit the mistake of where is God being... See, God is 
is sort of everywhere. That's what I've been trying to teach you in this series. God is not just in the temple. God is also in the palace. God is also in Hollywood. God is also in JPL. God is also everywhere. God's grace is lurking in the darkness. And our job is to identify that. And our job is to encounter God's presence outside the traditional boundaries of what we call church. See, you go, you go to church every day of the week. I told you, this is not church. This is a charging station. Don't take my word literally. I didn't, don't say that you said it's not the church. <laughs> the church has to become a charging station, and then you do church on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesdays. Oh, you may not explicitly say about the name of Jesus. I don't want you to go and preach salvation to people of Hollywood and all that. And if you get a chance, do it. But that's not what I'm talking about. You can be the carriers of God's signal wherever God places you. That is the, that is the beauty of the book of Esther. You can talk about God without talking about God. And that is the, what's happening in the, in the book of Esther. My question to you is, that was Esther's finest hour. You know, I'm pretty sure Esther was the most beautiful woman in that kingdom. And I'm pretty sure she had children and grandchildren. I'm pretty sure she had many palaces and pretty sure she had mighty, like, beautiful gardens and everything. But Esther is not remembered for any of that. Esther is remembered for that one night with the king. That is the only reason we remember Esther. It is that defining moment. It's that defining hour. It doesn't matter what happened after that. It doesn't matter how mighty she was, how beautiful she was. That one night, she had the courage, she had the audacity to go to the king's court uninvited just for being, showing up with courage. Now that is the defining moment of Esther. Now my question to you, what is your defining moment? See, God has given you and me such proximity to power, many other people in the world will envy. No, I'm saying this because, you know, some of you know that my previous background, and I have some background in engineering, and I have some background in movies, and, and, I'm, I, and I, sometimes I marvel at the fact that I'm standing here in Los Angeles. Lake Avenue Church is literally sandwiched between Hollywood and JPL and Caltech. Do you know there are people in the world who would just be honored to walk by those Caltech streets? I'm an engineer from India. They would just pay you just for being around that because it's such a significant cultural institution. There are millions and millions of people in the world who would just love to come to Hollywood, just walk through the street, even if they don't get a chance to be in the movies. Because because these are the places which create culture, which brand culture, which market culture all over the world, not just in America, all over the world. 
and we are right in the middle. <laughs> As a pastor in Toronto, Canada, I didn't have this luxury. Many other people in the world doesn't, don't have this luxury of being in this place with the, such a proximity to power. And God has placed you right inside the Circe's palace. Oh, you want to be very shy. Uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to out myself. And I can understand the identity crisis some of you go through. And I've been there. Believe me, I was not born as a pastor. I transitioned in between. So I've been in your shoes, and I can understand the identity crisis. For the last couple of weeks, I've been kind of forming two groups, actually. A group with the, with the, tech, uh, the science, I call it a science cohort, people who work in the field of science, some of these JPL culture guys and having, getting together for a breakfast. Then I'm also gathering a group of people who work in the industry. There are people who are movers and shakers in Hollywood right here in this pew. Right here in this pew. I was trying to get them on a private meeting by invite only. If I haven't invited you, I don't know you, so please connect with me. But I, just, I was just trying to talk to them. I was trying to talk to them. How can church help you? Most of the time, church is trying to get something from people. So I'd say, let's, let's reverse it. I'm not here asking for any help. I'm asking, how can I help you? And I could hear this, this, this crisis of identity to be in King's Palace, where the values are antithetical in so many ways, but still they have to keep their Christian identity. Now, if you have that crisis, look at Esther. Esther, in so many ways, stuck out like a sore thumb. She was an ultimate outsider. See, first of all, she was a Jew in a Gentile court. And as I said, the whole world was crying out, death to Israel, death to Israel, like today, at that time. So she was an outsider. She was a Jew in a Gentile court. She was even trying to hide her identity. Her original name was Hadesa. It was not even Esther. Esther was the Persian name that which was given to her. She didn't want to identify as a Jew because in the palace she knew it is a risky place. She didn't want to lose the position. A Jew in a Gentile court. Then the second one, she was a commoner. She was a commoner in the royal, among royals. See the, the story of uh, Esther when you read the you know, it starts with the prologue of the one, queen, one king and two queens. There is another queen named Vashti, and she kind of disobeys uh, the king's commandment to, to fetch her, to, to present her to his friends, and all that kind of stuff happens. And she says, no, I don't care. And the funny thing is that you don't even see Vashti is getting punished except for the fact that she lost her queenship. But if I was, no, I don't want to say if I was, but Cersei could have just killed her, just like that. But it doesn't mention specifically because Cersei, even the mighty emperor will be scared because it's apparently, we, we hear that Vasti, his previous wife, was the granddaughter of King Nebuchadnezzar. So the alliances come with certain kind of power. They are all royal blood. Just because Cersei is mad, he cannot just go and kill his wife. He cannot just abandon her just like that because her uncles and aunts and the fathers and grandfathers will come because they are all from royal family. And here is Hadesa, little Hadesa, who is a commoner. 
and she is now supposed to behave inside the palace, right? And the third thing, as you know, is that she is a woman in a man's world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you talk about equality and all of that today, but the back in the days, you don't even want to think about that world. Even today, there are certain man's world. One of our daughters work in, in a man's world. She is in investment banking. And she says it's a man's world. It's all, almost pretty much everybody in their office except one colleague, they are all men. Because it's a crazy world. You had to work like 24-7. She always walks around with a laptop and obviously the cell phone and all that flies to New York and, uh, and then Boston and all of this. You know, it's, you're constantly on the move. It's very difficult for women to do the way our cultural setup. But I can see her excelling at it. She's only 22. She can do anything she wants at that age. But as a result, and again, I'm not bragging, but she made more money than us. <laughs> because that's what happens when you take risk. Because that's, that's a strange word. Investment banking, right? The point is, what I'm trying to say is, we can have all these things and complain about, oh, I am not allowed because they don't take, they don't look, they look down on women or they look down on Jews. I mean, Esther could have had all these excuses. But Esther was not called to a safe Space. She is called to a dangerous space. That is the risk you are called to take. Church is not a safe space. The call to the gospel is to a dangerous place where you are going to be killed. The cross is the only promise Jesus has made. And we can complain about the systems and procedures and everybody around us, but I'm asking you, this is your finest hour. Step up and show up. That's all you need to do. Esther didn't go and convert the king. Esther actually didn't say anything. She went and, king, can you come for a dinner? That's all she said. She basically invited him to a missional community. Do you want to come to party? That's all she said. <laughs> and she invited Haman and the king for a party. She didn't have the courage, and then she invited them for another party. That's all you have to do. You don't have to do some heroic thing. See, this is again another thing that we often confuse. See, your finest hour is not the moment you deliver your best performance. It is the instance in which you embrace the highest risk. Your finest hour is not when you deliver your great performance, but the moment you embrace the highest risk, because that is going to be your defining moment. I remember 23 years ago, Joanna and I immigrated to Canada as a young, new, young couple, new immigrants. Joanne was this pregnant, ready to deliver our first child. New country. We didn't have anybody. Our, her parents immigrated with us, so they didn't know anybody either. We didn't have any, any, anything. And we had, I still remember, $1,435 in our checking account. That was not even enough to pay one month's rent. We took the risk and we came to Canada just to explore the possibilities. And particularly, uh, they were looking for skilled immigrants. And so I had an engineering degree, so 
you know, we, we knew that we are set for a bright future. But then we had this, without going to that, an encounter with God, and I applied to seminary, and I, I remember getting that admission from University of Toronto, Knox College Seminary, and I had the admission paper, I looked at Joanne, and I said, this is going to change our life. This is going to change our life. I remember that moment very clearly. And I was hoping that she would talk me out of this. <laughs> After all, she is a CPA. <laughs> and she's a woman who tend to think more reasonably than men in this kind of situations. She looked at me with this stomach. <laughs> Go for it. Go for it. I remember that was our finest hour. Sometimes I wonder, what would have happened if she said no? Actually, I wanted her to say no. I, I really wanted her to say no. Well, I would have been an engineer. I would have been at least a director, or if not a vice president level in a big corporation. We would have been living in a very nice suburb in, in Toronto, in a beautiful mansion, <laughs> still paying mortgage, two SUVs, two-car garage, two beautiful children that we already have, barbecuing, <laughs> Sunday evening, watching football. What a miserable, ordinary life it would have been. <laughs> but in our 25 years of our marriage, we have lived in 11 different places, in four different countries. Our life interconnected so deeply with people of around 60 to 70 ethnicities. People in different countries who think of us as their children or brothers and sisters we can reach out to. Meaningful connections are made. I have eaten from this McDonald's and to Langham. There is a big wait list of people who want to have dinner with us. It is so difficult for us to put all of them in the schedule. It is all because of the finest hour. All because of that finest hour. See, I don't want you to think of the finest hour as that majestic thing you do, that spectacular things you do. That 300 Spartans, their finest hour lasted only for three days, and in the end, all of them died. Oh, no, they didn't. Their legend lives on. What do you want with your life? What do you really want? Live forever? Extend your lifespan as possible? Or just die like Spartans in three days? What was the finest hour of Jesus? Was that the day he went for baptism? When the Lord declared, Behold, this is my son. Or was that the mountain of transfiguration where he became like the superhero? Was that his final hour, finest hour? 
or even the resurrection. No. The finest hour of Jesus, the defining moment of Jesus and Christianity happened on the cross where he took the highest risk. Highest risk. Although he existed in the form of God, he emptied himself. God emptied himself. God risked everything. Now that is the finest hour that defined Jesus. And he became obedient to the point of death, the death on the cross. That is why he was resurrected. That is why he lives again and again. No matter who is trying to, trying to demythologize Christianity, no matter who is trying to dispel Christianity out of the culture, he will ever live on because he took the highest hour, his finest hour that is defined by that highest risk he took. The question today is, as our children taught us, do you hear somebody knocking at the door? Man, even if you forget all my sermons, just remember what the children sang today. Do you hear someone knocking at the door? This is the time for you to show up. See, Mordecai very clearly said, Esther, Esther, the refuge and deliverance for your people will come anyway. It doesn't depend on you, Esther, but God is giving you a chance to play a role in the drama he has already written. The climax is already short. So you don't, we don't, Esther, this is not about the Jewish people. Because he very clearly affirms the end is already known. The deliverance will come for his people anyway, Esther. It is not about them. It is about you. You are given an opportunity. Don't try to save the Jewish people. Don't try to save anybody. God is giving you an opportunity to be a conduit of that salvation. That's why I always say that and sometimes to your annoyance. See, the church doesn't depend on your giving. Don't try to help the church. Don't try to help the pastors. Don't try to help the kingdom of God. This is a privilege. This is an honor because God can save this place from unexpected places like Circe's. There are people from Hollywood and come and rebuild this church. There are people from upper echelons on the society can come and rebuild this temple. God can use anybody, anywhere, but you are given an opportunity. This is not about the people. This is not about the church. This is about you. You are given an opportunity. You are being tapped on your shoulder to your finest hour. God is in the palace as much as he is in the temple. I'm going to give you, would you close your eyes with me? I want, to, I want you to take a few moments to think about which is your palace. Where is where has God placed you? What is that one step you need to take? Just one step. Not to do anything miraculous, not to do anything magical. Just to show up at the king.
and reveal your identity. And the scepter of the king is going to raise toward you. And if the Bible is the word of God, you will be blessed for that action you are going to take. Whatever that is. Now, if you walked into this place, maybe for the first time, you're not a Christian, you don't understand any of this, what, you talk, what, what I'm talking about. This is also an opportunity for you to understand and appreciate what happened on the cross, where God took the highest possible risk of kenosis, self-emptying, because he loved you so much. And he is asking you, what are you going to do in return? What are you going to do in return? Would you open your heart? Would you invite him in, into your life? Would you accept Jesus as your personal savior? I don't want to turn this into a Billy Graham crusade. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands and you know, write, write your name down. But I'm just, I want you to take a few moments today to look what happened on the cross, the finest hour of God on Mount Calvary. And hear the call. Invite him into your life. Because that is going to change your life. That is going to define your identity today. You know, today can be your finest hour. This might very well be your finest hour. That moment of decision. Would you pray with me? Father God, what a call. What a call that you have. What a summon to the court. Lord, thank you for the proximity to power that you have given to us, whether it's in our schools and colleges, in our neighborhood, the way that you have positioned us. Lord, today we decide to show up. We don't know what to do. We feel like complete outsiders, like Esther felt like a Jew among Gentiles, a commoner among royals, and a woman among men. But Lord, we dedicate ourselves to you so that your Holy Spirit can take us, mold us, shape us into the mighty vessel so that the world will remember us for this finest hour. In Jesus' name, amen.